Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, Shiloh, we are doing the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants 20, 21, and 22. Quite a bit of content here. Uh, Section 20 is one of the longer ones. This is the constitution of the church, so to speak, right? This is kind of what was written to say, hey, we're, we're formally organizing the church. This is who we are. This is what we believe. This is how we're going to be organized. And this is how it's going to work. And, you know, these are the basic ordinances we're going to perform, stuff like that. So we refer to 20 a lot in terms of figuring out priesthood offices, the duties of the priesthood offices. It's got the sacrament prayers in it, stuff like that. So it's a pretty foundational document, so to speak. Um, it was kind of compiled from various points here. You see in the uh, section heading that um, there's portions given it at different times. I, I, I thought it was kind of interesting how the section heading talks about it as a revelation. However, the flow and discussion of the section is not in the same um, voice as other revelations that are like, you know, listen to me, Christ, your Lord and your Redeemer, thus saith the Lord type of, of speech, right? It's more in a, a we voice. In fact, we look at verse 16, it says, we the elders of the church. And so notwithstanding Joseph Smith identifying it as a revelation, it's definitely more the voice of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery Probably a lot of Oliver Cowdery actually in here. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> he's the one that would have written it. So this is very Oliver Cowdery-esque, you know, more so than some of the others that might be more Joseph-esque, so to speak. But uh, section 20 has a lot of great stuff in it here. One point that I always kind of like to bring up, and this is sort of, it's not a pet peeve, maybe a little soapbox or something like that. I know there there's a common belief in the church that our calendar is absolutely correct in terms of its dates relative to Christ's birth and that this section proves it, right? Because this section is Revelation and it says that the organization of the church is 1,830 years since the beginning of the Lord. And that means that Jesus was born on the 6th of April. Okay. So I get that. I even get that that was what, you know, has been stated by even some presidents of the church and widely believed by, by membership of the the church. But um, there's actually a lot of scholarly, uh, even, you know, especially inside of the church and plenty of apostles throughout the years that, that believe differently, that, that that's not what this is actually saying. So I hope I don't ruffle any feathers by saying that I don't believe that it's necessary that, you know, to, to be a Mormon in good standing, so to speak, right? Can you say that Mormon in good standing? <laughs> that you believe that Jesus was born on the sixth of April, right? For me, that's not not a not a thing. Uh, even if it's true, I don't I don't think it's all that important, right? Consider my feathers ruffled. Yeah, a lot of people do think it's important. They're like, no, you know, the date's really important because the church was organized on that day, and that's the day Jesus was born. It's like that's fine. Um, if that's important to you, that's 
that's fine. I don't mean to attack your faith or anything. I'm just saying that it's not that important to me, and I don't think that it's actually true, <laughs> personally. <laughs> now, I've spent too much time on that. So, section 20, like I said, really great. We've got all these discussions of priesthood offices and sacrament prayers, and I think we'll have some good things to say about that. Section 21 talks specifically about Joseph Smith's role and then Zion. And then section 22 is this tiny little section, but there's some really profound things that it says there if we really dig into what it's talking about. And I think that if you or I wanted, we could go on for quite a while about the tangential concepts that are sort of brought up in section 22. I don't know that we will, but we could. Because I know before we started this episode, we talked for over an hour about some things that that related to Section 22. So what are some of your thoughts on Section 20, Shadow? Yeah, I figured we could possibly talk for another hour or two about all the stuff we were talking about before actually recording. <laughs> it's like all the things that don't get put into the podcast. But uh, I actually love the way that Section 20 starts, the rise of the Church of Christ in these latter days. And it, it's one of those kind of unknown factoids to a lot of people that the church actually went through several name changes until 1838 when we settled on mm-hmm. the name Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The official name is not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the initial and the original name was Church of Christ. And then it became the Church of the Latter-day Saints in 1834. Then it became Church of Jesus Christ. Then it became Church of God. Then it was Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then finally in 1838, in section 115, in verse 4, it comes out and it says, the name of the church is going to be Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, quit hopping around, guys. You know what? Just just stop. (laughs) 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 Haven't you guys read the Book of Mormon yet? (laughs) So... I mean, it's great. I I, I do personally wish they had settled on something shorter, but it's okay. Yeah. (laughs) I figure we can get a, get away with it and just keep on. It's, it's a mouthful sometimes, but yeah, the the rise of the Church of Christ in the latter days. I think this is fascinating timing, especially with what we were talking about last week with David Whitmer's blessing when it talks about when Jesus Christ identifies Himself and He says, "This is My work," and you know, I've been thinking about that all week about this My work that this is God's work he's already proactive doing his thing. He was doing his thing and he's always been doing his thing. It's his work. A lot of the time I I tend to think, you know, it's my work. You know, people, people are going to like me in, in this work. And I, and, and the radical shift of mentality that has to happen when we realize that this is not my work, this is God's work. And he's inviting us into his work. And if we want to be involved with his work, he invites us to come be involved in his work. In fact, he says, the field is white, all ready to harvest. And lo and behold, he who thrusteth in his sickle with all his might, he he will lay up and store massive amounts. I've already done the planting. I've already done the irrigation. I've done the weeding. I've done everything. If you guys want to come in and be a part of the harvesting, hey, come on in. You get to be part of the fun part. Right. (laughs) You get to be part of the fun part, right? And what an amazing blessing that is. And we've talked about it several times, these moments when God comes down to Moroni and he's like, thou art Moroni. Remember we talked about that? Or when he says to Joseph, thou art Joseph. And he says the same thing to David, thou art David. (laughs) Yeah. And I love these moments because, you know, in a way you're like, yeah, you know, why is God telling people's (laughs) names that they already know their names, right? 
But in a different way that we've talked about it before, it's this this realization that God's saying, let me be God and you be you. You're Moroni. You just be Moroni and do Moroni's things. You're Joseph. You just do Joseph's things and you do Joseph. And same thing with David. And so with that whole thing, you know, that I've been kind of feeling that that spirit as I've been reading through section 20 and just seeing God's hand in how he's bringing about this church of Christ that people are starting to come into this conversation in in other parts, you know, because I'm going back to school and I'm, I'm doing a master's class right now and, and uh, doing graduate work in religious studies. So I'm reading a lot of early American political thought and early American religious thought and and really studying the great awakening again <laughs> again so mm-hmm. a lot of these things were on my mind and 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 of what uh and of what the world was like you know when Joseph Smith and when these things were going on and to realize just the the myriad of voices and of the different kinds of experiences in the first vision Jesus Christ comes down he says that no one do good not even one but yes, we also have this narrative, you know, from like Marky Peterson, who was an apostle who wrote the great prologue. He was really popular in the 70s, I think. I know I read it growing up, but, you know, he makes the point that, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ couldn't have come about to any other people at any other time. It had to come at this time. And, you know, the the, the field was, you know, ready for, for the gospel to come about. But yet at the same time, when God finally comes, having supposedly harvested everything, he's like, no one's doing good, no one at all. But this is the field that I've prepared for you to do what you're doing, kind of thing. <laughs> and it's just it's just weird narrative, right? Um, of, of how to marry these two things together. But we begin to just to see God's work in Joseph's life and his work in the Whitmer's life and his work in Oliver's life and his work in Emma's life. And if we do like to study history and we like to study, you know, if you're weird like me and you like to study the history of the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, you know, you get to see that God is working in so many people's lives that, that, that they are truly trying to come into this experience with them. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people who are out there just doing it for their own, uh, their own pride and their own vanity. But there are also people out there who are truly trying to seek God. He's coming in with grace to to give them these experiences. And so as I've read through these, uh, this section 20, and there's a couple things that, you know, we'll bring out about how these ideas in their time were pretty spectacular and about how this was kind of a new thing because there's a lot of similarities, concepts of Zion, concepts of the millennium, concepts of the restoration or of like the true church, you know, that whole kind of mm-hmm. the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a new concept in their day and age. And what's called the burned over district there in uh, New York, where the Second Great Awakening really happens, there are many movements, other other religious movements, who are also claiming Zionism. You know that they've got to build Zion and maintain Zion and and, and establish Zion, and they yeah. and they're talking about the millennium and Jesus is expected to come tomorrow, and you know we've got to do this stuff right now, and it's in our lifetime and and to prepare for it because everything is going to burn. And this idea that people were looking for the true church or the restored gospel or the same organization that existed in the New Testament, this was not a nuanced idea. I mean, this was a very popular idea in many places throughout that whole region. So Mormonism doesn't really, it wasn't that people had this thought and they were just magically floating through the United States and like having these really unique questions and they happened upon Joseph. Didn't come about in a vacuum. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
And they didn't just happen upon Joseph Smith and they're like, you're who I've been looking for forever. There was still God was leading his people. And so there is still God leading his people. But we just kind of have to understand the the stories that are going on of, of their context. Because I think sometimes we oversell our narrative. It's not to say that our narrative isn't true, but we we oversell certain aspects of it. That when we come into conflict with the actual history, our assumptions of what happened, when we come into conflict with what actually happened, um, sometimes we feel a little deceived. And so bring that up, not to be able to shatter any of these ideas to make it seem less spectacular than it was, but just simply to say that as God was bringing about these things, these conversations were already going on all over the place. And so it's not uh, sometimes when we just read just narrow church history, we just stick to church history documents. We don't get a a broader context of what was going on in the entire social atmosphere and the entire uh, religious context of his area. And so when we finally figure out that (laughs) these things were kind of common, we're like, oh, well, maybe the restored gospel isn't as special as I thought it was. And I've heard that before. I'm like, no, 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 no. Everything that was going on is, it was very spectacular. We've just sometimes in our church narratives about how we read and assume because we don't have context out to greater things, we just write a different story in our head than what actually happened. So that's the reason I bring that up. It's just to kind of bring a little bit of reality to the mix so that as we talk about this, we can see how the conversation begins, how Joseph is talking about it, how they're talking about it, and then what God is doing new in that conversation. And I think it's pretty spectacular. Well, I think it's about the narrative being inclusive rather than exclusive. And I think that we talk about it too much in terms of exclusivity instead of inclusivity. And what I mean by that is we talk about it in terms of God only working through what he's doing here with Joseph Smith, whereas he was actually doing a lot, you know, to try to bring the people to him, right? And Joseph Smith and the restoration of the church was one of those things, that was happening to bring this about. And he calls it a marvelous work and a wonder, but it's not the only thing that he does. You know, and we, we, we talked about this in earlier sections. You know, some of the language in here is, is really interesting and it says some really great things to chew on for a little bit. I especially was struck this time as I was reading through by verse seven. And it says, and gave unto him commandments, which inspired him. And I really like that. I, I started thinking, you know, what, what commandments inspire me? Do commandments inspire me? Do I let them inspire me? Or or do I look at them as just these like very, you know, deadweight things that are just like, you know, the scriptures say do this and so you have to do this. But do I look to a commandment for inspiration as opposed to, you know, just that's what it says? Or or do I look to it as something that I can learn something more from? Right? Oh, what is this commandment, and and what does God mean by this, and why would He give this, and and so I think I, I really like that verse there that we look at commandments as something to be inspired by, rather than something to be like put upon us or or just simply obeyed. Right? Um, there's there's more to it than just just straight up obedience. So I like that verse seven there. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I'm gonna I'm gonna in fact. I'm gonna I'm gonna mark that because I didn't mark it before. I'm like, I'm <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, <laughs> s- several times throughout there, the, the way that this section is written is is very different, and I would say that it's kind of it's kind of odd to my 
21st century Latter-day Saint religious sensibilities to to have these things and then just say amen and then and then move on and say amen again like it's it's definitely not within my typical religious linguistic experience even though it like it's sitting here in the doctrine and covenants right <laughs> I just think that's interesting. It's a it's a document of its time. This was how uh, religion was was formalized and spoken and discussed. And again, this is a formal document here that's that's like talking about the beginning and organiza- organization of the church. You know, they're they're officially starting the church, legally starting the church. So this almost looks a little more legalistic than we might see with other types of revelations. Over here, as we get into sort of the cosmology story, verse 19 always uh, stood out to me, and gave unto them commandments that they should love and serve him, the only true and living God, only living and true God, sorry, and that he should be the only being whom they should worship. This really uses some of the same language from the book of Moses, where there's a discussion about God is speaking with Enoch, and he says, you know, I created man. And I gave them commandment that they should worship me and and love me and they should love each other, but they don't, you know, they hate me and they hate each other. And and so this this language here just was reminiscent of that uh, to me. It's sort of this precursor to the fall, verse 20, but by the transgression of these holy laws, man became sensual and devilish and became fallen man. This could bring up a larger discussion of the fall, which we probably won't get into, but I've always liked how the book of Moses goes into it because the fall is not seen, this event that we quote unquote talk about as the fall is not seen simply as Adam and Eve's partaking of the fruit. What it is, is it's actually their posterity after them who, instead of choosing to follow the way of the gospel that's taught to them, they choose, it says that they love Satan more than God. And then it says from that time, man became carnal, sensual, and devilish. And that is actually more of, of what I would reference as the fall, so to speak, even though that in terms of events, we talk about Adam and Eve partaking of the fruit. So, Yeah. You know, when it, it was asked, and I remember, I forgot who asked it the first time when I heard it, and they, and they said, what tree are you eating from today? You know, we get to choose to eat from the, the knowledge of good and evil, or we get to eat from the tree of life. It's like, which tree are you choosing to eat from today? You know, because that tree of duality, the tree of, of good and evil, puts us into this epistemic world of dualism where we see the whole world by their opposites. I think it's Father Lehi, right? Where he talks about seeing the whole world and everything has its opposite. Yeah. Where And that's our fallen world. And our entire epistemic foundation and the way that we construct the gospel is kind of built on this dualism. Whereas... The tree of the love of God is simply just the one fruit of the love of God. You're not, and you can't eat the same fruit at the same time. And in fact, to get to the love of God, you have to go through cherubim because cherubim takes away that false self that we're partaking of the other fruit with. So yeah, it's it's the, this whole thing that God keeps inviting us back in to this, this story, this narrative, and, and just asking the question, what fruit am I eating from today? Am I eating from dualism? of knowledge and good and evil, because that fruit is never going to lead to happiness. Just living in this whole dualistic black and white good and evil paradigm is has never really produced much goodness. 
And I know that's really shocking to a lot of people like, well, what else is there? And I remember when I heard it for the first time, Mm -hmm. I was like, that's just nonsense. That goes against everything that I know in the gospel. But then as I started to really get into it and study it more to and and realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not as analytical as I ever wanted to make it. And I was eating from the tree of knowledge and good of evil. And that was just creating my entire life construct within this analytical mindset of just thinking about God. And, you know, I've talked about it before about uh, our good, our, our, our shared friend, Kenny Boo, a good friend of ours from so many years ago. And he was on a social media post and I, I forget what the conversation was about. And he just said something to the effect of all y'all people are still just talking. He didn't say all y'all. He wouldn't say that. But th- th- that's my southernness coming out. You know, I was, <laughs> he's like, you people, <laughs> or however he said it, I don't remember. You're spending so much time talking about God, but no one here is actually experiencing God at all. And I just that, that just that moment when he said crickets. that crickets. Oh man, <laughs> crickets for me for like a week, man. I just I read that and that hit me really hard. And I, I guess hard enough that years later I'm still talking about it because I recognized that for all my talking about God, I had not actually experienced God. I was I was eating, I was I was plucking the fruit off of that tree of knowledge, good and evil, and I was just I mean, I had baskets full of this stuff and I was just gorgeous. You're making it. pies out of it. I was <laughs> I was making preserves fruit for- leather and all sorts <laughs> of stuff with this fruit, right? And uh you know, I was I was cut up in slices and uh, and yeah, everything. <laughs> but I I was not tasting of the love of God. And my life was empty. And so I started to more focus on how do I actually experience God's love? How do I get into a place where, and so when you, you, you initially make that switch, it's how the questions you're asking are how then at some point they enter into a why, and then you kind of go through the, well, what am I doing? And so you go through this whole, the whole gambit of questions because that's just the natural process until you finally learn that you just sit with God. And you let him reveal himself. And man, does he. And that's just a beautiful moment. But, you know, that view of the fall is actually so profound to me. And, and I like how it fits with that verse 19 because, you know, he says commandments that they should love and serve him, you know, that they should partake of the tree of life, this love of God. And that instead we turn to this to worship something else. And what did Satan tempt them to do? Partake of the tree of good and evil, right? Step into this narrative of opposition and contention. This is what you guys should do. Don't partake of that fruit of the tree of life, love of God anymore. Come experience this contentious, analytical, you know, dualistic uh, type of life, which that's really hard to get away from because it's so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It, right? I it, mean, it, that's it what Eve wanted. She's like, yeah, but you will have knowledge. It's so interesting. It does taste really good. It's right? delicious and very desirable. It's delicious. It's fascinating. And like, you can't look away because there's so much there, right? And yeah, I mean, that. Yeah, I, I that sigh. That's profound. I feel you know, that sigh. I, I just, <laughs> every day I feel that sigh. But, you know, here in section 20, you know, I, I really like how the first little bit it's given to the first and second elder. Joseph is the first elder. Oliver's ordained as the second elder. 
Um, you and I were having a bit of discussion as to uh, uh, whether John C. Bennett was a second elder, but then Hiram becomes a second elder, and it's argued that he would have, uh, if he would have been alive when Joseph was killed, then he would have become the new leader of the church and not Brigham Young. But uh, but as mm-hmm. they were both martyred, then uh, history took its course. And then we end up with this discussion about the Book of Mormon, and I think it's just fascinating that. Of all things you could include in your introduction to the foundation of your church, that this is the this is the path that you're following. You've got your first and second elder, then you talk a little bit about the Book of Mormon, and then at this point you then start to focus and change more towards this cosmology with talking about God's nature, his everlastingness, then you talk about his creation of man after his own likeness. I'm like, what an interesting way to start a church. Hmm. With, this, with starting again with the whole creation process, and that's actually what got me thinking. And I didn't have enough time that once I the, the thought had dawned on me. But I am going to go through my own personal study. You know, in section uh, when we did section one, I brought up the point that there was the the study done in the 1950s by George Mendenhall, who had realized the six parts of ancient covenant making, and how all of those ancient ways of covenant making from ancient Israel and Syria and the Middle East find explicit reference in section one and about how all of those things are there in section one. And so as I was looking through here, I saw again this whole this whole historical prologue about how God starts over in the with the with the cosmology and and I'm like, man, I, I'm gonna take some time in section twenty to go back through to see if I can find those uh those those six points again. But uh but for now I didn't I didn't take the time, so I'm not gonna talk about it. But when you go into verse, you know, you brought up verse 19 and I loved verse 19 too, because when we're created in the image of God, then he immediately comes and says, and we should love him and serve him. And the thought there for me is, is God just, does he just, what kind of God is it that requires us to love him? (laughs) You know, it's it's like, love me, love me. You know, (laughs) I don't, I don't ever go to my kids and be like, would you please love me? You know, it just it's it's like it, it. There's like this weird aspect of uh, of who and what God is. So I've thought about that for a long time, and where I've I've come with this, with just my own experiences with God, is that when we are made in His image, that's our true self. God is love, and we are made in that image. And so when God is asking us, He's commanding us that we should love and serve Him. That's not just a selfish insecure God that needs us to love and serve him. He is love. He made us in that image. We are love too. That is our true self. The false self is this thing that's made in the image of the world that takes on the images and the identities and the characteristics and the opinions and everything the world offers. But God speaks and calls to our true self. He invites us into who and what he is. He is love. His work and glory is to bring to pass our immortality. He's already serving us. And what this is, is he's inviting us through this, what we call a commandment, because commandments always seem like this prescriptive command. That's a tautology to put the com- imperative. <laughs> it's like imperative, right? Of, of saying like, you, you absolutely need to do this. But when I look at this, I recognize that God is already love and we are made in his image and countenance that we are all always already love too. That just means that he's calling us into the conversation with himself. He's, he's beckoning us to come into that unity of the true self with him for us to recognize and repent of the things that we have adopted in our lives 
to leave these behind and to come into this with him. And that he we serve him, the only living, true God, and that he should be the only being whom we should worship. Not because he needs our worship, not because he needs our praise, not because he's selfish and he has some kind of egoistic complex. In fact, the opposite of all of that. He's calling us into that relationship with him because he's love and we are love and he's breaking through the barriers of that false self. You know, another way I thought of of saying that is, you know, that commandments are actually more descriptive than prescriptive, right? They're, they're describing who our true self is and how that self acts. And if we will but follow that, we our eyes will be open to see that as fact. And that's kind of how I like how it ties back to verse seven, you know, commandments are to inspire us, not to coerce us, not to to cajole us into something. They're to inspire us towards who we really are as as children made in the image of God. So, yeah. When it comes down to verse 22, talking about God and his only begotten son, he suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. You know, I love the temptations of Christ. I've I've had a growing love for that story of the temptations of Christ, especially when he is uh, being tempted of, of Lucifer to bow down to worship me and, and I will give you all of these kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And in, in our natural man view, or at least in my natural man view for so many years, I looked at the story and I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus was obviously smart enough that he's the one that created the earth. It was already his. And then I like threw in this like lock in idea of property. Jesus mixed his time and labor with the earth. And so it was therefore his metaphysically, (laughs) right? And so he's like, of course, he's not going to bow down to Satan because he already owns the deed to the whole earth. And and, and this is the way that I was thinking about it, right? That's when when I was doing the Beatitudes and going through and talking about the poverty of spirit and emptying and releasing the identities of this earth and mourning. And then it says, the meek shall inherit the earth. The third beatitude is that the meek will inherit the earth. After, and, and you know, we've talked about the beatitudes quite a bit because in order for to, to do the fourth beatitude, it means you've had to already do work with the first three. It's a type of systematic work and process. And so when you end up with the seventh beatitude, that means you've done work with the first six. So you have to kind of do the one of the ones before it to get to it. So to be meek. It means you've had to go through this poor in spirit process where you've emptied your egos out and you've emptied your earthly identities out and you've laid them, you just laid them at the, at the foot of the, you know, at the foot of God and you just discarded them. And, and part of this is I've recognized that as human beings, we crave belonging and we crave to be a part of a group. And one of the ways that we do this is that we, in in our egoistic self, I imagine that we have plugs. It's kind of a weird analogy, but it's like we have plugs sticking out of ourselves, plugs that we can plug into and plugs that other people can plug into us. And, you know, call these plugs our stories, call them our egoistic identities, call these. So I come into a group of people and I find someone who has a shared interest in a story or an experience. And it's like, I'm able to plug into them and they're able to plug into me. And now we have a complete circuit between the two of us. And that's how we bond with people, right? Is that we have these shared stories that we're able to connect with. But what often happens is that we start to feel disconnected and that we don't belong when in our personal relationships or in groups, 
we don't feel like we have any plugs that fit anyone else's sockets or that they have any plugs that match us. We're desperately trying to find a place to plug in and have people plug into us to have this reciprocal relationship, and we can't find it. And so I thought of for a while, I'm like, well, does God just give us like a universal plug where we can just like, you know, plug in anywhere to any socket? And then the thought occurred to me through this emptying idea is that no, God just is going to have us take this whole apparatus off. Just take off all these plugs that we require to plug into people and then for them to plug into us that we just take this whole thing off and we just stand there in our nothingness where we can't plug in and nobody can plug into us. And it's this kind of universal paradox where when we suddenly lose the ability of belonging anywhere, that we suddenly belong everywhere. And and that's when that beatitude started to make a lot of sense to me that the meek inherit the earth because they've emptied all of their plugs. They've emptied all of those things that require the need for them to fit in places. And so finally now, when they've gone through the mourning process of lost identities, that they used to have these egoistic identities that they used to project out into the world to belong places, that just like Christ, he looks out over the world in his meekness and he realizes that he has inherited the earth, not because he owns it, because he mixed his time and labor with it, but the meek inherit the earth because by belonging nowhere, they now belong everywhere. They inherit everything because they belong everywhere now. There's nothing that keeps them from anything. And that's why the Son of Man can go through and have no home, no possession, no pillow to lay his head down to sleep under the stars, and yet he's still the one that inherits all things. Be- not because of his poverty, but because he's emptied. So anyway, I, I find this this whole thing very fascinating with him suffering temptations. It's just that story of him going through these moments of of temptation just like we do, and the examples of how he's emptied to be who and what he is, so that when he's crucified, he's crucified and he dies and he rises again, he ascends into heaven, and this whole story that's told in section 20, it just takes on a different meaning for me. Yeah, the difference in those approaches, the way of Christ, is that meekness, that beatitude life, that as section 121 puts it, thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow into thee forever and ever. Whereas the way that, that uh, Satan was offering was a compulsory dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth, a, a different way of not inheriting the earth, but sort of conquering the earth, so to speak, making it submit to you through compulsory means rather than the way that Christ was was offering. So yeah, that's it's definitely it. two opposing ways of, of looking at reality, uh, so to speak, and our natures even. Uh, one being you know, the dualistic nature that Satan was offering versus the, the way of Christ. So, yeah. yeah. You know, coming over here, starting in uh, verses 30 and 31, they bring up these concepts. And I imagine these being discussions that Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith and maybe Martin Harris and, you know, some of these early members of the church had discussions about these concepts 
uh, prior, and they kind of wanted to to get them codified here as to as to what they really believed, and and they don't really get into it. There's um there's volumes and books and books written on these topics from various Christian denominations, even what they mean by justification and what they mean by sanctification, and so we're not going to. I don't think we'll be exhaustive on this fact, but uh, we did have, I believe, a pretty good discussion about these concepts when we talked about, gosh, this must have been, this actually must have been our LDS Liberty podcast when we did section 98. We talked about justification and sanctification. Yeah, we also did it on the war chapters, on the first war chapters for LDS Peace Studies. Okay, good. I wasn't sure- Yeah, I wasn't sure uh, how much we got into it it then, but these these are really profound concepts here that that kind of show us, you know, they're just a different overlay on the beatitude path, actually, if you ask me. Um, But they're just a different way of a perspective on it. And uh, you do a pretty good job of of describing justification, but the way that I um, I understand it is that this concept of justification is. Both of these, it says, are through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So justification is the idea that we can, within our sinful ego that we exist within at any given moment, we can receive the grace of Christ such that we can be emptied of that and and justified in that moment, that we no longer have to look to the past and feel shame or guilt about what that what that past means about our true identity that we can shed that identity and be justified in the moment by the grace of Jesus Christ so that it no longer has any power over our future or even our present and that sanctification is the means by which we then move forward into our true identity with Christ in his way into something greater um, and and more perfect um, of who we truly are versus what we we have been or have pretended to be in the past. And um, I don't know if you want to kind of add to that concept there. Maybe that was a little bit too esoteric of an explanation. But. <laughs> no, I like that a lot. I, I would just add, you know, justification for me has become a beautiful doctrine and a beautiful way of looking at God. But, you know, when I was having a conversation with a gentleman in my ward who I absolutely love and adore, um, we have a lot of conversations after church. And you know, <laughs> by conversations, I mean, sometimes my wife and I, we take two cars to church because I know I'm going to have an hour conversation after <laughs> church. <laughs> and, so, and so it's fun to be, you know, but uh, when you talk about justification, there are these moments I was talking about uh, um, Ether, Ether 12, about the weaknesses and weaknesses being made strengths. And when we talked about that, there's this idea that when weaknesses are made strengths, what it means is that the temptation to sin is usually gone or that we have built up to ourselves an immunity to resist temptation so that when temptation comes along, um, you know, a, a common sin like pornography, if you, if all, you know, suddenly you've built up an immunity to it so that number one, you're not either not tempted or that when you are, you learn how to avoid it. And so that's how we consider mm-hmm. usually a strength. And mm-hmm. when we recorded that podcast, though, I, I I received several messages from from a lot of listeners who because I I I'm going to paraphrase what I said. I don't remember what I said specifically, but it's that there's a lot of times when weaknesses are just weaknesses, 
And we never really get above and beyond our weakness. Maybe sometimes our weakness is just a physical weakness. Maybe we have a genetic weakness and there's no amount of exercise. There's no amount of priesthood blessings. There's no amount of other things in our lives that are going to fix these particular quote unquote weaknesses. And then, and then sometimes we say, well, that's not the weaknesses that we're really talking about. We're talking about the weaknesses you can do something about. I'm like, well, if that's the case, and that really kind of relegates this whole quote into just a really narrow way of looking at things, and the text itself doesn't actually say that. And, and so it just gets to be really complicated really fast. So one of the things I've talked about and I've thought about here with justification is that um, in my life, you know, I, I told a story about going in and talking with my bishop at one point about some, some things in my life. I'm like, God, should I be in here talking to the bishop about these things? you know, way, way back in my, uh, in my, in my early, or my early youth. And I remember talking to my bishop, uh, over time and I'd go in and just meet with him regularly and he'd be like, Hey, how's everything going? And I said, it's going good. And he said, are you doing better? And he always was very specific. And he says, are you doing better? He didn't ever ask me. He says, have you completely conquered this thing that, you know, these things that you're talking about? He never asked me that. He always just asked, Hey, are you doing better? I knew he was intentionally asking that, and that radically transformed the way I saw God. Because suddenly I wasn't I wasn't with a God, and, and I knew the bishop's love for me. And so I knew there was this relationship of saying that he's just asking me to be better. And sometimes I'm going to slip. Sometimes I'm going to fall. Sometimes I'm going to do things that I know, I'm, I know I'm not supposed to do. But the question is, are you seeking to be better? And the answer was honestly, yeah. And he's like, that's all you need. And just the honest sincerity that's coming out with, with what he says, sometimes weaknesses will just be weaknesses. Sometimes you may struggle with a weakness, maybe for your whole life, but are you seeking to be better at it, honestly and sincerely? And I think that's the whole point, because when we're, when we're just going through life seeking to be better and just seeking to recognize who and what we always already are with God, and to have our actions match that and to come into that relationship of recognizing that through repentance— that for me is justification because it's recognizing that I'm still going to sin. I'm still going to make mistakes. But in the moment that in this process, that, that sin doesn't weigh me down. It's no longer something that, that, that burdens me and makes me immobile, that makes me mm-hmm. just weigh down with this guilt and shame of sin. It's a recognition that this happens. But see, a lot of the times we get into this, this, you know, this fear that, well, if, if we don't place all of this, heavy weight on sin, then people are just going to sin. They're not going to care. They're just going to keep on sinning. And I'm like, I don't think that's usually the general human emotion and the human condition. I think for the most basic part, human beings are striving to be better, especially when we come into religious narratives and, and when we are a religious people and we are a spiritual people, we are by nature trying to be better. And that's the whole point. And so justification is this beautiful doctrine of recognizing God's way of just recognizing us for who and what we are. So when you go back to that conversation of like, you're Joseph and you just be Joseph. Well, just being Joseph and for me, just being Shiloh means I'm going to make mistakes and (laughs) I'm going to make a lot of them. And in fact, because it's me, I'm going to find really cool ways to be able to make them. And so that's just the way that I roll and I do things. I'm always trying to be better. I self-evaluate a lot. 
And the Lord knows that about it. And I know that the Lord knows that way about me. And so when I look at justification there, I see, oh, through the grace of the Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, of course, it's through his grace. It has nothing to do with me. I'm not earning my way to heaven, and I'm not qualifying my way to heaven through some stairway to heaven of ritual. I'm making my way to heaven through the grace of God. And with that, I'm bringing my intentionality to this process, and I'm bringing my relationship in, into God in this work. In that analogy that you brought up, I mean, I see justification as that kind of the way that we're looking, right? Are we looking back towards the shame and and who we've been before this very moment, or are we looking to God? That's that's the turning and repenting, right? Are we seeing God in a new way, or are we looking at Him in our old way and our old self? And that justification is. Seeing, repenting, seeing God in the new way and looking forward. Then in that moment, when we are looking forward towards God, we then receive that even more, that power, that grace to move forward. And I kind of see that as the sanctification process there. What did you have to add about how sanctification fits into that? Yeah, just just the same thing. Justification is like this thing that recognizing that on our way back to God, every step that we make on our way back to God is usually on a, on a piece of ground that is not perfect. Right. Mm. And so it's, it's not like, it's like the speed of light trying to travel the speed of light. The, the closer you get to the speed of light, the more impossible it is, unless there's justification because it, it's the Lord letting the consequence go for each one, every step realizing and sanctification is like your directionality. So justification has to deal with the step that you're on and sanctification deals with the directionality upon which you're walking. And so to come back into the presence of God requires this thing. I mean, it's just cherubim. You know, we've, we talked a lot about cherubim and the, the flaming sword and what that means to coming to, you know, he's not trying to keep us out of the tree of life. Cherubim is there to help us back in. Mm-hmm. It's an invitation to come back in and God realizes you can't just come in and just eat the fruit willy nilly. Just that's not going to be good for you. There's a process that we need to have so that this actually lands for you. And so there's cherubim. So yeah, sanctification, justification, and the way those two principles are married together and how God works with that to get us to recognize our true self, just to be, just, just absolutely be, you know, (laughs) I say that a lot, but man, the gospel is beautiful. I love the gospel. It's so great. (laughs) As I said, you know, there's volumes and volumes written on this, especially in the 1800s. These concepts of justification and sanctifications were really kind of hot issues and and there was a lot discussed about them and and probably a lot that doesn't even resemble some of the terms we've discussed here <laughs> but um uh you know pretty uh hot button words there i i love <laughs> i i had to chuckle a little bit at this uh, verse 35 and um it says and we know that these things are true and according to the revelations of john neither adding to nor diminishing from the prophecy of his book, the Holy Scriptures, or the revelations of God, which shall come hereafter by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the voice of God, or the ministering of angels. (laughs) I just loved that little part in there that they had to jab in, hey, we're not adding to or diminishing from the prophecy of Book of Revelation. (laughs) Because, you know, those last verses that say, hey, if you add to or diminish from, you know, may the Lord add, you know, upon that person, the plagues described in this book. It's also so much brought up um, maybe in like a a missionary context where you're 
you're presenting a Book of Mormon to somebody and say, oh, no, you know, you can't add to the scriptures. It says in Revelation that you can't add to them. So, you know, you guys are going to get all these plagues. So I just love this little homage to it here that's like, hey, you know, we're not we're not trying to do this. Don't don't uh, send the plagues of John upon us. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like a little head nod back to Nephi who says the same thing. He's like, Lord told me that John's going to take care of the rest of the story. I'm not going to talk about John anymore. About right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I also love verse 32. You know, I think that merits some discussion where it says, but there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Hmm. There's this idea that my grace is sufficient for you. Then is my grace sufficient for you in this conditional grace isn't sufficient for you. And I'm like, well, if grace isn't universally sufficient, then I, that's a, that's a pretty weak deal. You know, if it's only, you know, qualifies you in these few areas and but what, what I see is going on here is that grace is something that is always happening. It's the essence of God's work and glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. But there is still an agency. Because grace is offered and because there's agency, that fall from grace is not on God's end. It's on ours. And you know, we talked about the Hall of Prisoners, I, I think, in the previous yeah, it's episode. It's not a failing of grace. Yeah, it's not a failing of grace. When we talked about the Hall of Prisoners for Michelangelo, I think, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, you know, in Florence, the, the statue of David, you know, when Michelangelo talked about how when he sculpted, it said that he could see the sculpture inside before he ever carved it out. And so he'd always start with the torso and work his way out. And there in Florence before the 14-foot-tall David in all of its glory, the hallway leading up to it are statues of all of Michelangelo's unfinished works. And they're very haunting. You know, they're really haunting, especially with this whole concept of Michelangelo saying that he could see in his eye the figures before he ever chiseled them away, and then to realize that he died before he finished the project. So that these real life people are are stuck in stone for the for eternity, hmm. and so it's just it's this really emotionally captivating imagery that leads you to the statue of David. You know, this is very symbolic of the true self, false self, yeah. because when we start to realize that we are always the true self, it, it's like we we are what Michelangelo saw in the stone of in this whole blob of stone, and God is the person who's chiseling each chip away, helping us reveal what was always already existent underneath. These prisoners are those who I would say here who fall from grace are those prisoners who never were able to let the false self go because they, they remained in captivity in their own false self. They never truly became aware. The light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The light was there within them and they couldn't comprehend it. This grace, I never place any kind of the possibility that man may fall from grace. I never place that on God's doing. Like God's like, nope, I'm pulling my grace out from you right now. Like a, like he's pulling yeah. a rug out from underneath us. Right. No, grace is always there for you. It's always sufficient for you. It's just when we turn from it and we willingly rebel against it to keep that false self that we just immerse ourselves into captivity like the prisoners captured in these rocks. Just thought that was an interesting point to bring up. Well, that's that's the perspective I have when there's the discussion of 
unpardonable sin, right? You know, we get into this idea that, oh, there's only one sin that can't be forgiven, you know, the denying of the Holy Ghost. It's not that, strictly speaking, the grace of Christ isn't sufficient. It is. It's that the sin is such that the person is is literally, you know, deciding to turn away from it and depart from it. And so it's 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 not a question of whether it would or wouldn't be sufficient for that person to pull them out of that. It's that they they literally depart from it. And any sin technically has that potential. It's just all based on how we want which way we want to face, right? How we want to view God and ourselves um, and how we want to accept that grace into our life. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. For the the next many verses here in section 20, we go over a list of the offices mm-hmm. of the church, and we talk about apostles and elders, priests, teachers. There's no real aspect, there's no real part here for deacons, which is which is really fascinating. But I think if I were to choose any of these, I would want to be a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I like the offices of a teacher. He's just he's the one that goes to see there's no iniquity. Because he he's taking care of. There's no hardness. There's no lying, backbiting, evil speaking. Seems like a lot of work. That it seems like a lot of work. But for me, the teacher has to be the peacemaker here. Yeah. I mean, th- this is really what I see the, the teacher is. These early offices, they, they don't match how we do things anymore. Mm-mm. That's not how we function with uh, the age group. 14-year-old boys, how we administer this nowadays <laughs> – they're not. They're not doing this. This. This isn't the way we. You know. It, we. We. I remember reading this in. Uh, in as a young man and going through and like these are the duties of of your uh, priesthood office. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how would I even do this? <laughs> There's. There is no structure given whatsoever for me to be able to implement any. I'm not going over to yeah. a, an adult man who's who's doing it. And and so there's no way that I have context to any of this, and it would be inappropriate for me to act in this. So a lot of this. I think was very much in the context given that men were and 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 adults, I'll say adults were going to fill these roles. Right. And that they were going to be chosen to fill these roles. So And that makes sense when you're first organizing the church for it to be that way, for everybody to, you know, learn their way into these roles and what these offices really meant and what the responsibilities were. And and that's the way that it was for quite a while. I think it was early nineteen hundreds when actually the policy was changed to ordain men at a younger and younger age. They they weren't typically ordained as early as, as twelve. What are we doing? We're doing it at eleven now, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> keeps getting younger and younger. <laughs> so on the uh so, so in moving forward, we have a little bit here in verse sixty one and sixty two about the elders coming together to meet in a conference. All of the people ordained to these offices should be done by common consent, which is still done. In 68, we have the duties that are of the members that are, are there for them after they've been baptized. I like in verse 69 where it says that members shall manifest before the church and also before the elders by a godly walk and conversation, that they are worthy of it, and that there may be works of faith agreeable to the Holy Scriptures walking in holiness before the Lord. Uh-oh, hot button word for you, Shadow. Oh, I know, but <laughs> but that but that whole worthiness thing aside, the godliness, I, I, I just smiled when I said a godly walk. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, I want to see what that looks like. I mean, I get the metaphor there, but I, like, <laughs> I want to see what that looks like. 
it's, it's like a, a happy spring to your step or is that is that just you know i i understand what that means but <laughs> it made me smile <laughs> so uh i went on a an outing with the youth uh coming up on a couple of years ago we kind of were sitting around the campfire at night and talking about different things and and uh, one of the youth asked the question you know why do we bless babies in church you know why do we we do that there were a bunch of different answers which were all really good and and appropriate answers you know including the one well it says in doctrine and covenants that we're supposed to do it i feel like those just Right. Those just beg the question again. Well, well, why? <laughs> okay. Well, why does the Doctrine and Covenants say that we do it? And as I was sitting there listening to all of this, it occurred to me why we do it. And, you know, verses here that says that they're supposed to bring their children before the elders of the church who are to lay their hands upon them in the name of Jesus Christ and bless them in his name. And it just hit me. I was just like, we do this because that's what Christ did. I mean, it is explicitly spoken of in all the Gospels, including the Book of Mormon. I mean, they spend an entire chapter on Christ blessing children. And it just, it had never really occurred to me in, in such a way that we do this in the church. We do it so formally. And, you know, we, we get a certificate for it and everything, but like there's this profound beauty to this and in, in us seeking to emulate the acts of Christ in front of, of everyone to show them like that, that we're doing this. We're trying to follow Christ in the name of Christ. And, and it just, it just hit me in that moment in, in a way that it hadn't before. Yeah. I like that. I hadn't thought about that. I'm going to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at 70 right now and, huh, you know, we move from that into baptism and baptism is a topic that we've talked quite a bit about because it's a theme that pops up all over the place, especially in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants and repentance is going to be a big theme and baptism is a big theme because they go hand in hand. And here in 72, baptism is to be administered in the following manner unto all those who repent. So there we go. We see. <laughs> we see these two things again hand in hand and i love the baptism the baptism ordination in the the words having been commissioned of jesus christ i baptize you in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost there's so much to unpack there that this whole experience because baptism is supposed to be a daily experience it's a symbol it's a ritual it's something that we do one time in our lives Unless you lived in the early days of the church, then you could do it multiple times. But it's one of those things that in our lives today, we do it. I think we should go back to that. But go back to that. <laughs> just have baptisms every once in a while. Be like, hey, who wants to get baptized? That's right. Go through another uh, a Mormon Reformation movement of the 1850. I mean, we've got hot water now. I mean, it's way more pleasant of an experience than it was That's back That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why don't we do this like once a year? You know, and to realize that this experience that we have is done in the name of the Father, the Son, the entire Godhead is mentioned. Mm -hmm. And to realize that this baptism is supposed to be representative of experiences that we have in our own life, where the old us it dies and is brought forward as a new person, and that we are supposed to die every day and come and die and resurrect every day. The old us is gone as the new one comes up into this new way of being with God. 
but that this experience is supposed to be with every member of the Godhead. Hmm. When you, we really start to to notice that this whole blessing, this whole ordinance, this whole everything is in the, in the name of the Father. It's in the name of the Son. It's in the name of the Holy Ghost that invokes all of these to do this. It really makes not just the that ordinance special, and, and it gives added meaning to it and intentionality to it, but also those moments in our lives when we are go out to actually experience what our baptism symbolizes every day. That has a really powerful layer to that. It does. I think there's something to sit with there for a while. I'm going to have to think about that. When it goes into here to the, the sacrament prayers, I've always thought this was interesting. And, and I've heard tell that this was the way that the church did it, uh, used to do it more, was that everybody knelt down. So here, verse 76, and the elder priest shall administer it. And after this manner, shall he administer it? He shall kneel with the church and call upon the father in solemn prayer saying, and then he has the sacrament of prayer. And I, I know this is, I've heard some people, this is kind of a stickler thing for them. They're like, hey, this is really important. Dr. Kevin says you have to, everybody has to kneel down, you know, for the sacrament. I don't know whether everybody has to or not, but I, I, I think there, I think, you know, there might be something to that. And, and I think that, uh, if I saw somebody, you know, years ago, if I saw somebody, like kneel down in sacrament meeting while they were doing the prayer. I would have thought, that guy's weird, you know, and it would be a guy that would do it. Right. Not a woman. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but now I would be like, okay, you know, they're trying to really, this is personal to them. They're trying to, they have intentionality in this experience and they're trying to experience it in, in the way that they best can understand and connect with God. And so this is a way that, that, that does that for them. And I wonder I'm not saying like in a prescriptive way, hey, everybody kneel, but like I wonder if the experience were a little more open to allowing this type of thing and people individually and, and collectively were less distracted by everybody having their own type of experience if it could be something more meaningful for, for people as a whole. But, you know, we've talked about this before with this principle of, of non-distraction you know, we've gotten into it and, and stuff, but we, we are so easily distracted and, and thrown off by things that, that when we see somebody acting or worshiping or, or performing in a way that is unexpected, it, it can distract us, right? From what our own experience, um, is to be. And, and we shouldn't let that happen, but it does. And then we also should be careful not to, to present that opportunity for others to be distracted but it's going to happen anyway right and so uh it, it's all the it's all towards an effort of not distracting and not being distracted <laughs> but yeah i i think we practice that more formally prior to kind of the mormon purge of everything catholic yeah and when we were really trying to in early modern mormonism especially around the time of you know hebrew g grant and, and david o mckay when we were really going through and you know, banishing the cross from everything. Because we used to have the cross on a couple of our buildings and in a couple of our stained glasses. And there were, you know, several Mormons that would wear a cross. But then we were like, nope, everything Catholic and Protestant, we're just like banishing it all. You know, And so part of that, I think, because you do kneel formally in the Eucharist. Yes. And so that whole thing, I think we were trying to step away from a lot of things. Catholic is when that, if my memory serves me right, I'll have to go back in to look at a few books that, uh, that I remember that from. But 
It is. It's, it, it is beautiful. It is, you know, to, to be a priest and to kneel with that is a special experience as well. You know, talking about the sacrament prayers, I think, I think we could probably have an entire podcast just talking about these two verses with the sacrament prayers. Do you think that like the, I mean, the contemplation podcast I know has talked about this some, but they probably, you know, that would fit their format more. Maybe if they just did an entire podcast on the sacrament prayers. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk with them about it and see if we can uh, we can arrange something like that. I think that'd be awesome to, to because you're talking. You know, we, when you deal with the priest is the one who is talking for the congregation. I mean, just the whole sacrament, the whole sacrament portion. I know that there's a, a good friend of ours, uh, Morgan Aldous, who was on the one of the contemplation two po- of the contemplation podcasts. Yeah, they discuss this. Yeah, they do discuss this, and so I think that is on the uh, the alchemy the alchemy podcasts. And so if anybody's interested in that, if you go into Latter highly P- recommended. Yeah, yeah. latterdaypeacestudies.org. Um, there's the Come Follow Me podcast that are here. Also go over there and follow them um, at Latter Day Contemplation with Riley Risto and uh, Christopher Hurtado, and they have different guests on from time to time. And they talk about some really great stuff. And with, uh, with Morgan on there with his, uh, with the alchemy podcast, they, they do bring up a lot of the sacrament and the symbolism that goes on behind there. And it just, as I said, we could have at least another hour or two talking about these few verses here with the sacrament, but in moving forward, the, the end of section 20 really deals with some, some church kind of, of the times when they had conferences, yeah, you know, and they would meet up and they would bring names of who had joined and left the church or been who or who had been uh, excommunicated from the church, and they'd bring names and, and keep ledgers, and so those would happen, and that kind of finishes uh, section twenty, which leads us into section twenty one, and finally in section twenty two, there is a lot to say about section twenty one, but I kind of want to talk about section twenty two with our remaining time. <laughs> sure, I do too. Um, <laughs> I. Uh... I, I think uh, section 21, the, the only thing that we probably need to bring up and deal with is this concept that he gets into here, uh, verses 4 and 5. Uh, Wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his words. So this is talking about Joseph Smith. Thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. For his word ye shall receive as if... From mine own mouth in all patience and faith. This uh, this sort of in an orthodox way can appear as like an imperative as every single word that comes out of the mouth of explicitly Joseph Smith, but implicitly every one of his successors is the word of the Lord, right? And that's the way that it could be taken. But I think that people that want to take it that way are going to quickly run into some difficulties. I think the keys on these verses here are those last few words, in all patience and faith. As we learn to have an experience with God and get the Holy Ghost to be our guide and gain revelation that way, that becomes our lens and our guide by which we can gain a greater understanding and view into the words of the prophet when he speaks. And that's the key for me. Yeah, I've got nothing to add. I think that was everything I had to think about and say that too. Cool. 22. 22. <laughs> Moving into 22. So 22 is really short. It's got four verses. And I, you know, I think we should, I'm just going to go ahead and read all four verses. And then uh, Ben, you tell me what you think about it. Mm-hmm. Behold, I say unto you that all old covenants have I caused to be done away in this thing. 
And this is a new and everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. Wherefore, although a man should be baptized, an hundred times it availeth him nothing. For you cannot enter in at the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. For it is because of your dead works that I have caused this last covenant and this church to be built up unto me, even as in the days of old. Wherefore, enter ye in at the gate, as I have commanded, and seek not to counsel your God. Amen. The the whole point here is really talking about uh, what we have we've spent quite a bit of time on in in other podcasts. It's that it's this idea that to me that the ordinance in and of itself is nothing. It's dead. What it is that we're establishing here is an invitation to have an experience with God. And you can go through these motions a hundred times and do these things that section 20 just talked about, but none of them matter until you decide that this is going to be an experience for you, that you're going to make this an experience with God and really come to him through the way that Christ has has given us, through true faith and repentance. And then baptism is going to mean something, and it's not going to be a dead work. And so, again, you know, it's not about the ordinance. It's about what the ordinance is teaching us in terms of the type of experience that God wants us to have or is inviting us to have. Yeah, we do that so much with putting the symbol as the referent where the thing that we're supposed to be looking at, because all the rituals, all the ordinances, all of the, all of these things that we do, they point to something else. And they're always consistently pointing to something else until we finally figure out what that experience is that everything keeps pointing to. And one of the things that I thought here was looking at covenants, because that really does take precedent right there in the very first verse. All old covenants have I caused to be done away, and this is the new and everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. So here we have this old things, and I'm bringing something new. And it happened It happened in the Sermon on the Mount. Behold, you have heard it hath been said this, but I say unto you this. And we happen to know that this is very much Jesus' talk in him being the new Moses. You know, all, all, of, the, all of the commentaries written on the Sermon on the Mount— talks about how Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is talking about Jesus being the new Moses. Moses hath had it said this, but I say unto you this. And so we begin to see that here in verse 2, that although a man should be baptized a hundred times, it availeth him nothing, for you cannot enter into the straight and narrow gate by the law of Moses. So again, we have this old thing and this new thing. And covenants have been just a fascinating conversation for me in the last several years based on... I, I've tried to push my way down into understanding the need for covenants. Why do we even have covenants? You know, we say there, there are two-way promises between us and God, where we make a promise to do X, and then God makes a promise to do Y, and and they're, by, and they're conditional in each other, right? That if we agree to do this, and God will bless us. And so it's it, we have this conditional relationship with God through this covenant making. 
the assumption that I've I've heard over and over and over again, and it's not a it's not an explicit ex, uh, assumption that I hear at church. It is very subconscious. Is this narrative that God does not want to, or God will not do anything unless you live up to it, and you're con- and, you know you conditionally basically make it. And then you know we're going to get into this uh, to the section in DNC that talks about how. God is bound when we do what he says. 82.10, yeah. Yeah, we're going to get into that. And we're, we're going to really get into that. <laughs> and, and, the, <laughs> and the interpretation of, of the culture that has been, been been created on the interpretation of that scripture. Not the scripture itself. I have nothing against the scripture. It's the interpretation that the culture has taken and ran with and the effects of that interpretation. Because when we sit with the covenants, we have this idea that God would not do God's thing unless we held his feet to the fire with a covenant. That God, we have to, you know, God will bind himself to us in a covenant for, you know, so then we can like, we have a tether on God. I you know I, I can control God. God can't get away from me. You know, I, I God's bound when he does it when he said what I, you know, when I do what he says. And so then, you know, but then if I don't, he doesn't have, I don't have any promise because then at that point, God's, he's a slippery God and he gets away, he gets away really easy. So I got to bind him down. And, and I do that by my obedience in this covenant that's going to shackle him down. You know, we don't talk about it in this way. I get that we don't talk about it in this way, but this is very much a subconscious and implicit narrative that does get into our culture because of how we read and think about covenants. Covenants are not about God. They're not for God. There's no utility in any discussion that we have ever, that I have ever read once about covenant making and God. God does covenants not for him, but for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about Abraham, you know, one of the very first covenant guys. God came down to promise him something, and Abraham laughed at him. And I'm like, that's why we have covenants. <laughs> Because, because of our unbelief, because of yeah. us, because we're the ones that don't trust God. And God says, I promise. And we're like, I'm going to hold you to your promise, God. And God's like, all right. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you do what you're going to do. God's got, God, he's going to do this anyway, right? Yeah. And so covenant making is not about God. There's no utility to it. There's no, there's nothing that I've ever been able to find once in it. Man, I have poured over so many talks about covenant making to find out where what's in it for God. You know, is, is he a slippery God? Is he is he trying to wiggle out of his way of doing all of this? You know, my work and my glory is to bring to pass the eternal life of man. Unless they're not in a covenant, then at that point, I'm like, I've got get out of jail free cards everywhere. Right, and that that's that's just not what what he is. That's not his personality. But yet we've constructed a God that I don't know if how many of us really can trust him because of the narratives that we've framed around him. Because, like for instance, when we talked about grace in the previous section, our general cultural interpretation of grace is it's something that we have to achieve and we have to earn. So there has to be like a stairway that we get to God's grace. And and there's no, there's literally no metric out there for how to do that and how to actually get there. So how can we ever actually really know that we're doing that? And it really sets up these narratives of doubt. I saw just on uh, YouTube the other day, Elder Bednar, 
talking about members who are scared because they don't know if they're how they're going to get to heaven. How do I know if I'm going to get to the celestial kingdom? So he has this whole talk where he elaborates on how to know if you can get to the celestial kingdom. Mm-hmm. And we've created those narratives in our culture of of a fearful doubt. Now, that's not to say that there's blame here. There's a lot of other churches that do the same. Man, American history and American Christian history is full of religious sects that, you know, they, they've posited the same kinds of silly things about God, about not knowing your place. But in this way, we have created narratives about God that subconsciously and implicitly keep us from having full faith and confidence and trust in God. And one of those ways is how we talk about covenant making. And so when we talk here about old covenants and these new covenants, and we have to live up to our covenants or God's not going to bless us, it really puts us in this subconscious place that we feel we have to checklist our gospel discipleship to the nth degree before we feel that we're worthy and receptive for God to love us conditionally. Right. And that thought needs to go back to hell where it came from. There's nothing about God that can be in that thought. God loves us with an eternal love, and his grace is always there sufficient for us. We can always appeal to it. It is always already there for us. What makes it to where it's accessible for us? Well, that's a, that's a great discussion because I know in my life, I've experienced over and over and over again the proactive grace of God when I did not qualify for it and when I did not earn it. So in this way, we have to recognize that our ideas of covenant making with God have to start adopting this idea where we have a kind, loving, benevolent God who's heavily proactive in bringing his love and his compassion and his mercy into our lives. We have to start accepting that I do a thousand things every single day to keep God from loving me, and not one of them has ever worked. He's always coming back. He's always there with me present. Just he sees there with each and every one of us. And so when I transform that idea of God and then I enter into the conversation of covenant making, it's just like what you said before, Ben, about commandments. Then it becomes a matter of inspiration, not a matter of control. I'm inspired by God through this covenant that he would come down here and he would give me the assurance of his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion. Instead, we've turned it into a conditional if-then thing. If we do this, then God does this. He doesn't really want to do this. He wouldn't do this anyway else. But when we start to see God, that he wants to be there, he's already there. And the covenant here is not to bind him down and control him to do something else that he wouldn't do. It's to help us give the assurance and the inspiration of stepping into this covenant with absolute fidelity and love and reliance on his mercy. Definitely see it that way. It's it's a condescension, right? That God comes down to us and, and on our level of, of needing that reassurance says, okay, you know, you need this thing codified, so we're gonna do it this way because you don't you don't quite understand who I am, but through this process, you will come to a greater understanding of who I am. And so we're going to start it this way at your level. 
And then as you grow into that, you'll come to see more of who I am and that I don't need to speak to you in oaths because everything I say is the way it is. And I, you know, I don't, I don't break my promises. And so, yeah, that's, that's definitely the way that I see that here in terms of these new and everlasting covenant. And I I like how it's kind of alludes to that here. You know, it says it's new and everlasting, but it's the same thing that I did before too. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's new, but it's also old. And it's different from everything I did before, but it's also the exact same thing that I did before. You know? <laughs> and, and, and what's interesting about the way that he says that is because it's like, it's different from the way you think that I did it before. But once you come to understand it, then you'll realize that this is the same way I've always done it. And people simply interpret it in different ways and don't understand because they won't come to me, right? And do that. So, yeah, there's really quite a bit in between the lines here in section 22. And so much of it really illuminates some of the real deep, deeply seated feelings and motivations, if you can use that word, behind their desires for a restoration, right? The things that really sparked this in the minds and hearts of the people, seeing that, that there was more to their experience with God than just religion, than just these performances. There had to be something more. And the Lord says, yeah, actually, it's not that there's more. It's that there is the the actual substance that you're completely missing, right? In verse three, it is because of your dead works that I've caused this last covenant in this church to be built up unto me in the first place, because it the the entire point of this has been getting missed by by the religious establishments. Yeah. Well, Ben, you just hit everything that I wanted to say about section 22 and I said everything that I wanted to say about section 22. Okay. So then that's it. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you everybody for sticking with us and for listening up to this point. Next week we will get into sections 23 and 24. I think there might be even a 25 involved. But uh, as we get into those, I, I actually love twenty five and talking about Emma and and I, I, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of repentance to do towards Emma. I hope I can sit down with her and and have her uh, forgive me for some attitudes that I've had against <laughs> about her. There's no reason I should have. I mean, it was it was an, an ignorant uh, you know ignorance towards her. And my wife has always chided me over my ignorant feelings there. And and I've repented and I have a lot of love and compassion and. I hope she does too. <laughs> when, when you get up there, I I really hope her and Brigham have uh, patched their uh, their thing <laughs> with each other. So that that will be funny to figure out once we get to, to that side. But for uh, but until then, we'll see everybody next week. Thank you again to Kyle Swingle and for Catherine Hamilton and for all of your hard work with editing these podcasts. They wouldn't happen without you. To all the listeners, if uh, if you enjoy listening to these, if you could support us. Leave us some ratings on the on the platforms that you listen to: iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google. I think we're on YouTube. Yeah, we're on YouTube now, and uh, and so we're we're building those platforms. So subscribe to those, rate them, share them, and uh, give us any feedback. Send us any messages. You can reach us on Facebook on the Latter Day Peace Studies Facebook page. We're growing. Uh, Lindsay Olin has daily memes and content that she puts out there. That, uh, that we share. And those are absolutely amazing and wonderful. And I love everything about them. And then we share the podcast on our Facebook page. So come like us, come check it out, send us a message there, 
come to the website. And uh, I think there's a place there you can uh, leave us a message on the website as well. So yeah, thank you guys for listening. You're awesome. <laughs> and uh, until next week, I'm Shallow Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. We'll see you then.